0: I'm Lisa Fine, and I'm one of the co-hosts of the Great Women in Compliance podcast. You are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report. Check out Great Women in Compliance on the Compliance Podcast Network, and it posts every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. You can also join in the conversation at the GWIC community on LinkedIn as well. In this episode, I have back fan favorite Mike DeBernardis. Mike is a partner at Hughes Hubbard. We take a look at key enforcement actions and issues from Q2 of 2021. I know you will enjoy it. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back in with Mike DeBernardis for uh, now partner at Hughes Hubbard. Uh, proud to be able to say that. Uh, but we're back for our sort of quarterly review and wrap up. So, Mike, first of all,
1: welcome back. Thanks, Tom. It's excited to be back. Always uh, always enjoy coming on and, and uh, talking about recent development. So uh, let's start with uh, FCPA and
0: particularly the uh, really lack of F- FCPA enforcements. Uh, I think we both agree that's meaningless, but perhaps we can explore that a little bit. But um, I guess uh, we did have one FCPA case, which I thought was interesting, but perhaps more interesting, we, we had several uh, individual prosecutions. And I guess I just wanted to start with uh, we had the Yates memo back in 2015, and I know that was a big discussion internally at Hughes Hubbard. I think you and I visited about it. I've certainly thought about it and written about it, what it might mean down the road. Is is what we're seeing here in uh, the first half of 2021 really uh, something that's the, either uh, fallout or – the continuation of the Yates memo, or is, or is it just
1: business as usual at the Department of Justice Fraud Section? It's a really interesting question, and I don't think I'm um, spilling state secrets here. But but Tom, when we do these talks, you always you often send me some topics in advance, give me a, a chance to look smart and, and study up before we discuss. And when I when I saw this one, um, you know, I haven't candidly had, hadn't thought about the Yates memo in quite some time. Um, at least thought about it critically in terms of how it's affecting current prosecutions. Um, and so I went back and did, did some number crunching just to kind of get a sense, at least from the FCPA perspective, right? Uh, you know, we now have a lot of data. There's, it's been five years, five years plus since, uh, since the Yates, Yates Memo, I think it was September 2015. And so I, I don't want to bore you with numbers, but but if, if that was September 2015 with, when the Yates Memo came out, uh, the two years before that, I think in 2013, there was uh, 14 individual prosecutions, FCPA-related prosecutions filed. In 2014, it was 11. 2015, there was, there was 18. These aren't perfect numbers, but this, this was sort of my quick calculations. Uh, and then the, the following year, it, it sort of stayed the same. It was 19. And then we saw this big jump. So 2017, 2018, and 2019, we had over 30 each year. Uh, so I really think if if we were going to, if we had seen a... a sort of cause and effect it was it was in that time frame when it would have would have happened ironically enough sort of a, after um Taliesse left left the DOJ there but then you know in 2020 we saw 16 and this year it, it feels like this year we're seeing a ton of individual individual prosecutions i think part of that is that there's been a, this absence of corporate prosecutions but I, you know i think there's only four that have been filed this year a couple filed at end of last year that were announced this year so i really think you know even before I crunch the numbers, just just sort of thinking about it, I think at this point, this is this is just business as usual. Uh, individual prosecutions are are a big big part of uh, what the fraud section is doing in, in terms of FCPA enforcement. It certainly it could have been a a a practice and a focus that started after the Yates memo in September 2015 that carried over and really took effect in 2017, 2018, 2019. But at this point, this is this is sort of just where we are, I don't know how much you can you can put the, this current year into that meat box of hey, this is a direct byproduct of the of the Yates memo.
0: We did have one FCPA corporate enforcement action involving a deferred prosecution agreement, and uh, we've talked about I guess in in a kind of our Q1 wrap up, we talked about uh, the I think we agreed the meaninglessness of no corporate prosecutions as of that point. Uh, I'm of the inclination that. One is equally meaningless. Uh, just today, we had the uh, uh, Department of Justice head of the uh, criminal section uh, approved by the Senate. So we're still getting the political appointee level. And uh, I guess my message would be um, nothing's changed. Uh, this administration has said there'll be aggressive in enforcement in a variety of areas. I wouldn't expect it to be any different. Uh, But do you see things differently from, you know, where you guys are sitting these days?
1: Uh, No, I don't. Uh, I have some numbers on this, too, that I'll I'll get to. But but I'm curious. I mean, you talk to a lot of people, Tom. Have you talked to anybody in this space that does place a lot of meaning on on this sort of lack of enforcement uh, over the first, you know, seven months of the year?
0: Uh, No, because historically, you know, we've had years where, there were less than ten cases, less, sometimes less than five, in, in a six-month period. And you know, we had one year where there was twenty-eight in one month. Uh, it's just the the nature of the beast. Uh, they're lengthy investigations and uh, negotiate settlement negotiations. And then when they're ready for settlement, there's no calendar, uh, really <laughs> timetable going forward. They're just they're resolved. So uh, I guess that's taught me over the last ten years plus. There's there's no rhyme or reason for
1: few cases, no cases, or a ton of cases. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, <clears throat> I I went back and was looking at at sort of the data again and uh in 2017, which was the last you know change of administration, right? We had a similar situation actually and and I think it it's thrown off a little bit because we had these four uh corporate prosecutions in January, actually before before the inauguration uh in January. But then not not another one uh until September of of 2017. So we had we had a big gap there, I think People didn't pay as much attention because we had these four at the beginning of the year. It's there's you know there is no sort of rhyme or reason for it necessarily. I'm I'm sure there's a number of factors that that go go into it, including the fact that you know we've got got a lot of turnover right now. There are certainly a lot of open investigations. If you if you look at the the number of public companies that have disclosed FCPA violations, it's I think it's up over a hundred. So there's, there's certainly a number of investigations. And um, I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a matter of uh matter of timing. Like you said, it, there's, there's really, it, it it's, there's a formula that, that says there's gotta be, you know, three cases a quarter uh, unfortunately. So I really read, read pretty much nothing into it. Um, it's interesting from a sort sure of historical data perspective, but I really read nothing into it. And I think you know what we've seen in the past is when you have one of these gaps, you often have a uh, you know a, a sort of corresponding deluge of of settlement that that come afterwards. So there's a little course correction. One of the things we did have was the
0: Biden administration released a statement on uh, corruption as a national security issue. And uh, certainly that may fall closer into tone at the top than actual implementation. But when you have that tone at the top, Uh, What I wrote about and what I tried to convey was that that message would then move down throughout the department, and not simply the Department of Justice, but multiple other agencies in the U.S. government, uh, from uh, the FTC, as obviously the SEC, but also the OCC, uh, and perhaps other agencies. Did you see it in that that manner, or uh, were you able to really not simply talk about it internally and what it might mean, but really have
1: conversations with clients? And if so, how did those conversations go? Yeah, I'll be honest. When when the when the memo first came out, I thought my initial thought was this is going to be something that's that's fun for for the practitioners to to talk and, and prognosticate about, but it's really going to be kind of meaningless. That was my initial my initial thought. And then we started getting questions from clients that were a little more sector specific. How's this going to affect me? How's this going to potentially affect me? How's this going to affect our competitors, et cetera? Uh, and so that, that's when you know I, I started giving it a little bit more critical thought. There's a lot of different ways this could go and I think a lot of it honestly will depend on the, the interagency review that's that I believe is currently ongoing. <clears throat> excuse me. Currently ongoing. You can certainly see as you mentioned there's that tone at the top and and we've already had this trend over the last several years of sort of other agencies that you might not expect jumping in to to you know in the anti-corruption sphere, you know, CFTC last year and the year before kind of had some uh, some resolutions that that had corruption focus. So you could see that sort of playing out. I could also see, uh, you know, I was talking to, to one defense client who was asking about it, and the Department of Defense, of course, is is part of the interagency review. I know you, I could certainly see some additional uh, hurdles and regulations that that the DOD puts in place. Uh, for u s government defense contractors contracting with uh, foreign governments in terms of you know maybe requiring some some additional uh, diligence steps some some more transparency you know it's stuff like that to really uh, I, I think these agencies are going to focus a lot on their uh, their area and try to see where corruption comes into play and there's a potential that they come up with with ideas that that have a, a sort of uh, waterfall effect on companies in terms of, hey, it, here's here's some things we're going to put in place to try to attack corruption in our specific space.
0: So simply because there was a dearth of uh, FCPA cases did not mean the Department of Justice was not out there investigating and prosecuting. Uh, I've really thought about a lot about uh, False Claims Act, fraud, uh, particularly around uh, PPP and, and PPE. Is that something you guys are seeing uh, inquiries from clients about, or are you actually uh, – adv- um, Actively counseling clients on other fraud actions brought by the department
1: Yeah, I actually I, I wrote an article about this towards the beginning of the year it's, you know the historically, when you have a big government spending in, in when, whether it's uh, you know emergency spending after Katrina or, or you know tarp back, back in uh, after the 2008 financial crisis, uh, the the FCA actions, the false Claims Act actions they they follow on it's it's like clockwork because whenever you have big spending you're you're going to have the fraudulent you're going to have the the overtly fraudulent actions involved with that and then you're also going to have just the missteps that that you know otherwise honest but perhaps negligent or or uh, careless companies are going to make uh and so i absolutely I- expect uh this this to be a focus. I mean, the, the Department of Justice has said they're going to sort of actively go after fraud. But I think that the False Claims Act piece is, is sort of what's next to come, whether that's companies that, that, that accepted, you know, participated in the PPP. Uh, I, I think, you know, as part of the sort of the secondary stimulus package, there was a lot of uh, money earmarked for for various sectors. You know, there's there was infrastructure, whatever it was, Thirty billion for infrastructure. These, we throw these numbers around like they're they're meaningless, but thirty billion is a lot of money. And, um, and so you're going to have companies who are ultimately participating in those uh, projects. Maybe maybe companies that really haven't been a government contractor in the past. Uh, and so the False Claims Act and and the, the, all the uh, sort of uh, compliance issues that, that come along with it. Uh, they might not be as familiar with. Uh, so I, I think. This, the level of spending we just saw was, is absolutely unprecedented. I would be very surprised if there's not a corresponding level of unprecedented uh, FCP, FCA action uh, in response. Uh, that's absolutely our expectation. That's what we've been telling clients. Uh, I, I don't have any active matters with it right now, but uh, I expect we, we will you know, here in the near future.
0: We'll be right back with Mike DeBernardis after this message. Mike, one of the agencies that has been active, uh, particularly around communicating its expectations now, been the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, We have had, I think, a a fairly dramatic change in philosophy, both enforcement philosophy and investigation philosophy. Um, We've had a couple of actions uh, around uh, SPACs, and we've had lots of discussions around – Corporate disclosures on climate change, ESG, and and other areas not emphasized by the prior administration. Uh, wh- where are you guys on on that? Are you actively counseling? Are they are clients coming to you uh, asking for help around what do we have to disclose in our Ks and Qs? Where are you guys on the SEC right now?
1: Uh, I I'd say we're getting far more questions, seeing far more issues. Uh, with respect to the SEC than the DOJ right now, and p- part of that the enforcement focus for the SEC uh, tends to uh, vary more wildly depending on the administration and the the leadership than the DOJ does the doJs you know they're out there to prosecute crimes and they're going to continue to do that uh, the SEC you know I, I think Republican leadership often takes a, a a different approach to enforcement than than democratic leadership. And so we do see sort of these, you know, changes in resourcing and, and focus uh, on enforcement more. It's felt more acutely, I think, with respect to the SEC. Uh, and certainly, you know, the leadership that's been that's been put in place at the SEC, both both, you know, uh, uh, SEC proper and, and the enforcement division, I think, signals that uh, a change there. So we we have been seeing uh, getting a lot of questions uh, dealing with a lot of issues in that area. Uh, I mean, you hit on some of the big ones, SPACs, obviously are stealing headlines right now. And I think, uh, there's going to be a focus on that. Anytime you have, uh, anytime a a new sort of vehicle or financial, uh, mechanism is, is used and is in the wall street journal a lot. the SEC is going to take a, take a close look at it. I, I I think we're going to see, and we've been getting questions on this too, um, you know, whether it's accounting fraud or, you know, disclosure issues around the pandemic, you know, disclosures that company companies made about their financial position during the pandemic and seeing how that plays out. You know, there there was a lot of pressure on companies not to, uh, you know, not to raise too much of an alarm during the pandemic. And so I think we'll we'll see some, some focus on that. Uh, And then two other areas where, where, Sort of moving forward, I think we're gonna we're gonna see a lot of attention, and it's just certainly in areas where our clients have been coming to us asking about, hey, what do we what's this gonna look like? One is in sort of the cybersecurity area. Uh, You know, it's in the news every day about the, the various hacks, ransom whether it's ransomware or you know, hacks just to steal data. So that's one area where the SEC take, you know, certainly is has in the past taken a look, and I think uh, a closer look, and and some, we'll see enforcement there. And the other one you touched on, uh, which is around climate and ESG, you know, we've got this climate and ESG task force now, uh, and I think that will be, perhaps, we'll see the most stark difference there, obviously, because that's something brand new, uh, where where. I think it'll take some time, but but by the end, certainly by the end of this four-year run for for President Biden, until uh, leading into the 2024 election, we'll see we'll really start to see some action and movement there. And um, we are getting more than ever questions from clients about ESG and you know what they can do in terms of ESG and, and compliance, and and you know what they can say uh, for, for our publicly traded companies, what what they can say, and being careful about that.
0: One of the areas that I've seen a lot of commentary in, I'm kind of the opinion it's a problem in search of a, or rather a solution in search of a problem, is the question of CCO individual liability. It typically comes up in regulated industries, um, but it sometimes bleeds over into U.S. public companies. The New York City Bar Association published some uh, proposed standards that they would suggest the SEC used uh, the current standards are basically, if you're involved in the fraud, uh, you're subject to uh, SEC sanction, whether it be civil or criminal prosecution, although it's typically civil. Also, if you are completely incompetent, uh, you don't know what you're doing, or you basically buried your head in your sand, in the sand through conscious indifference, a, so, someone who's been in those positions, I, I'm comfortable with that standard, and I think it's an appropriate standard, but the uh, I really wanted to ask your opinion on this. Is that something that you guys are getting questions about? or Are CCOs really worrying about uh, individual liability,
1: or is, or is this something different? Historically, Tom, I, I would say the, the compliance officers more generally, not just the chief compliance officers, but compliance officers at our clients, their level of concern with respect to sort of their own individual liability depends a lot on the personality. You have some that are just absolute, uh, worry that, that are gonna, uh, sort of be, be incredibly, uh, nervous and, and perhaps they're less confident in their, their own, uh, jobs or feel like they're being sort of pushed in one direction or another. But for the most part, I think, uh, they certainly notice when a compliance officer is, um, is penalized. And as you mentioned, it's, it's, you know, almost always civil penalty, um, and there there will be a you know a buzz of activity and questions that might come that follows on to that almost always in, the, in a regulated industry, right you know financial services and and that that sort of sort of thing. Um, but overall i I think you know this is something we've talked I've talked about in the past, something that that I've gotten questions on in the past, something that I've been asked to write a, write on in the past. I think this is another another area where we sitting in our our chairs comfortably here like to talk about, but, but doesn't, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't do a whole lot. I mean, I, I you, you are the standard you just articulated, uh, really isn't, is to me entirely appropriate. If you are, if, if you're actively involved in the, the offense, it doesn't matter what your position is, you you, you can be held liable. Um, if you are sort of consciously, you know, putting your head in the sand and ignoring it, especially as a compliance officer you're going to be held liable. And I, I'm fortunate enough not to have met any compliance officers, or certainly chief compliance officers who take that approach. Um, and then if, if you are grossly negligent, I mean, I, you know, to me, those are, those are similar scenarios, right? I mean, I, gross negligence almost to me means that you're, you're sort of ignoring a problem, just putting your head in the sand. I mean, I, I again, I, I don't, I think it doesn't matter what your position is. If, if you're that, uh, if you were that sort of uh, intentionally bad at your job, uh, there there could be some fallout to that. But I think, honestly, I think compliance officers are are comfortable with that. Where where it's going to get trickier and where it does get trickier, is if you sort of start taking the uh, if if regulators sort of start taking the backward looking approach of, okay, we had an issue, hey, you really should have known about that compliance officer, and now we're going to hold you responsible. That's where I think compliance officers are. are would would get some heartburn um and understandably so because it's a hard job it doesn't it doesn't matter what the industry is being a compliance officer is a hard job and um you know I know you and I have talked about it, but in the past, just because there's misconduct or an issue doesn't mean that you know the compliance program failed or that the uh, the compliance officer failed uh, there's there's no sort of perfect perfect uh, compliance system to prevent misconduct so I think that's where Certainly, if I was in-house anywhere, I would be nervous. But I, I haven't quite seen that standard being talked about.
0: It's one of the reasons I enjoy visiting with you is uh, we get to really geek out sometimes. So for those listeners who are out there who like that, we're about to geek out.
1: Uh, <laughs> when I started
0: practicing law uh, in Texas, there was a huge change in the definition of gross negligence. So I only learned the new definition, and that definition was the entire want of care. Uh, just some care, the entire one. So I learned that, and that's been my uh, kind of definition for gross negligence going up, growing up professionally. And I find that to be an appropriate way to define what you describe. And so I'm extremely comfortable with that uh, as a test and even as a standard from the SEC. And, and when I'm asked that question at a conference, I say, now listen to, to me very carefully. There have been zero, let me repeat, zero enforcement actions, civil or criminal, where a chief compliance officer was charged with negligence. Uh, it's always that higher standard. And so I'm, I'm really comfortable with that because, once again, it's the entire want of care, not just, you know, you screwed up or you messed up or you had some care but not enough care. It's the entire want of care. And so I, I really find that to be an, an appropriate standard. And to your point, it, we should be judged by that. If we are grossly negligent, we shouldn't be in that position. We either not competent, or we let somebody else influence us. So, is um, is that kind of consistent with your thought approach in that?
1: Absolutely. And, and look, the reality is too. You know, even the cases where you've you've seen the the standard being used as gross negligence, the reality is I, I think there is there's often the suspicion that the compliance officer was actually directly involved, and maybe there wasn't quite enough to actually show. Actual involvement, and so you fall back on this gross negligent standard. We have not today seen, sort of, many of the regulators, whether it's FinCEN, SEC, uh, an appetite to even go after compliance officers who are just bad at their jobs, right? This is always there's always something something else there, uh, and I I think your your description of that standard is is exactly right. And That's sort of the comfort you can give the clients too is, you know, if if you're not directly involved in this. And you're at least trying to do your job. You're 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 going to be safe. This this is not we have not reached a point where compliance officers are being uh, prosecuted civilly or certainly criminally for just not being great at their job.
0: One of the areas that I think might be ripe for change in enforcement is in the area of uh, uh, environmental crimes, and and I don't mean SEC disclosures around climate change. I mean environmental crimes. uh, Crimes. I think. That was one area that was not a focus of the prior administration. Is is that something you guys are either fielding questions from clients on or talking about internally, and and how should companies uh, really think about a change in that enforcement arena? At
1: The beginning of the year, you know, I had a, a number of clients who asked, um, you know, us to, to either draft something or do a, a brief presentation on it. what do we think, where do we think the Biden administration is going to focus enforcement? What, or you know, where where's that's not even the right what they really wanted. what they really wanted was what are the, the be the biggest changes in enforcement from the trump administration to the biden administration and I always included environmental crime uh, on this list. Uh, I think this is not this is certainly not my area of expertise. others at the firm uh have have more experience in this than I do um, but I, I know enough to know that this was not a focus of the trump administration uh Almost, in, in, you could even go further and say, sort of, it was a uh, a point to to not focus on it. Uh, and I, whether it is through a new task force, because there's there's a lot of talk right now. Uh, you know, I, was, I think it was in January Biden issued an executive order on this uh, to really make this more of a focus, and environmental justice being a big focus. And I think we will see some changes within the Department of Justice in terms of how they attack these things, but even just, uh, you know, environmental protection agency I- enforcement actions, I expect it to be a big turnaround. Uh, it's something I'm watching closely in terms of where does this go, particularly with the environmental justice piece um, that they're pushing at the Department of Justice. Where does this land? Because, I, you, know, we, you, sort of, you know, we have clients that this is a bigger issue for than others, but I think even for our clients where you wouldn't necessarily think Of environmental issues as being one of their their high risk factors, depending on the the approach the Department of Justice takes with the Environmental Justice Initiative, it could become one. And so it's it's something that we're keeping a close eye on, certainly. Uh, And you know, when we bring that up in these these papers and and discussions with clients, it's one they're always clients are always sort of interested in. But also, I think not surprised by it because it was sort of very publicly was not a focus of the Trump administration.
0: Mike, one of the reasons I enjoy working with you and, and your colleagues at Hughes Hubbard is uh, you're great at putting out sort of retrospective pieces, uh, obviously your annual FCPA review and other clients alert, client alerts, but you also are prospective and you think about things that may be coming down the pike or uh, clients need to, to think about or, or just you know thought leadership in different areas of the law. Uh, so I wanted to maybe uh, conclude with asking, um, is there anything that you guys are talking about internally that uh, we need to start thinking about from other areas or are there concerns? I mean, we've had a lot of information from the new administration already about the directions they may be going. So are you seeing some tea leaves out there that uh, we need to uh, at least watch? Yeah, I think we we
1: touched on a couple of them uh, already, Tom, a little bit, which, which is um, certainly False Claims Act stuff, both for our for our government contracting clients and for our non-government contracting clients who, you know, were, were involved in the stimulus in one way or another, um, is an area. I have not gotten so many questions about ESG in in the last two months, more in the last two months than I had in the last 10 years of my career. It's just, everybody's talking about it. Uh, if you go on LinkedIn, everybody's posting about it. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a huge area of focus and interest. So that's, that's certainly there uh and then you know one thing that we didn't talk about certainly not my my uh area of of focus although the firm is quite good at it um and I'd be remiss if I didn't say that my my wife is also quite good at it is is in the area of of antitrust enforcement uh you know i think it was earlier was it, it was earlier earlier this month or or last month uh, that that biden it, it, you know issued a, an order on that saying this is going to be an area of focus I don't think anybody doubts that i think we're going to see over the next few years uh really an unprecedented amount of of anti-antitrust enforcement both criminally and, and and civilly in in areas we haven't even thought about in the past uh and i know my my colleagues at q suburb are certainly gearing up for that
0: the uh certainly in the, the ftc with their new chairman khan and the head of the antitrust division i think pretend a, a more aggressive approach but maybe um and then, of course, on both sides of the aisle, amazingly enough, there is pushback against big tech. And they, uh, Google, Amazon, Apple, uh, Facebook, are all in the regulators' uh, headlights. But what about maybe smaller companies, smaller cartels, had a lot of cartel work in the, the chicken space, interestingly enough, and, and I'm sure there are others. Do you think that uh, these big cases are going to suck the air out of the antitrust division so that they really only... Focus on these these massive kind of generational cases, or do you really see uh, uh, a more aggressive
1: approach up and down the line in antitrust? I see this as as being increased enforcement across the board. I, I think you know there's there's two issues I think that are that are bipartisan at this point. We're we're, it's, we're down to two. One of them is big tech. Everybody wants to to get on big tech uh, in one way or another, and so I think we will of course see a lot of uh, the antitrust action in, in big tech. The other's China, and and everybody is you know coming up with ways to um, to be anti-China. Uh, but in terms of uh, antitrust enforcement, I think I think big tech is obviously going to be a focus. But if you read if you read that order carefully, I mean, it, we're talking sort of the the directions from the very top are take a look at everything, take a look at you know no poach agreements, take a look at at price fixing, take a look at you know you know old school cartel type behavior across the board. And so that's what I would expect to see. I I think um, any smaller company hoping that, you know, the attention moves away from their industry to focus on big tech is, is, uh, you know, probably not approaching it safely. I I guess I, I, because I really don't think that's going to be, those are obviously going to be big headline stealing cases, but um, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say anyone's safe from, from that watchful eye.
0: Well, Mike, as always, it's been a ton of fun. Uh, we're going to link to, uh, uh, your profile on the Hughes Hubbard site. Uh, but if anyone wanted to contact you and really follow up on any of the topics we've uh, touched on today, how could they do so?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, feel free to, to, to call email. It's, uh, the emails is michael.debernardis at Hughes Hubbard. Um, I'm always, uh, happy to to talk about these things and please feel free to connect on LinkedIn too. I, I, uh, You'd be surprised at how often, you know, whether it's through this or, or, you know, another type of speaking engagement, you know, I get I get follow up questions on LinkedIn, and it's always really fun to engage with people on these topics. I, you know, I enjoy just talking about this stuff, uh, whether whether it's with clients or, or folks like yourself.
0: Well, Mike, I look forward to our next conversation. Perhaps in uh, Q3, we'll have a different set of issues to visit about.
1: Yeah, maybe we'll see some actual uh, enforcement and have some, be able to dive into some cases a little bit, Tom.
0: This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you're interested in history, specifically the Greek and Roman period, I hope you will check out the special podcast series. Richard Lummis and I are running on 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. We're taking a look at Plutarch's lives and bringing it forward for leadership lessons for the 21st century. A fascinating series on one of the seminal biography and textbooks of history. If you're interested in history, biography, Greeks, or Romans, I know you'll enjoy it. Please check it out. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top
1: business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.